0: Life of Barnabas if you go over to e-town and you go to the shopping plaza that has Old Navy Ross TJ Maxx bath and beyond how many of you have spent a good amount of money over there there's a little restaurant out in the front that maybe you have stopped and visited called Chick-fil-a any Chick-fil-a fans well, you couldn't go today because they're closed on Sunday, but every other day there's this wonderful little restaurant there that, particularly in the South, we love. They have sweet tea, and waffle fries, and good chicken sandwiches, what I call Jesus chicken, because only chicken tasting like that could be blessed by Jesus, good Jesus chicken. Well, you might not know much about how they make the food, but you probably know something about the founder. Uh, Truett Cathy, who grew up in Georgia, founded the company. Uh, He is now with the Lord, but he put some principles and some practices in place at Chick-fil-A that were really revolutionary in the restaurant business. One of those principles, one of those practices that he held to was that we must make the second mile second nature. If you ask for something or if you need something, you will notice that the employees are just swarming around ready to help. And when you say thank you, they will always reply, it's my pleasure, something that Truett Cathy wanted them to always say. He had other principles that made this company very unique. The mission statement, even of the company, would be like you might find on a church. The mission statement of Chick-fil-A is this. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. To have a positive influence on all who come into contact with Chick-fil-A. Maybe you wouldn't say that a restaurant and a church can have the same mission statement, but to glorify God with everything that we have been entrusted with as good stewards, that is very appropriate. He was asked one time why they close on Sunday. And he explained it this way. He said, well, it all started back in 1946 when I opened my first restaurant a 24-hour coffee shop called The Dwarf Grill. I I don't think he would have been successful in life franchising The Dwarf Grill. Chick-fil-A sounds a little better. He goes on to say, After the first week, I determined that if I ever took seven days a week to make a living, I should be in some other business. It was my conscience that I had to deal with. I just could never come to the idea of dealing with money on the Lord's day. I became a Christian at age 12. That's not to say everything I've done since that time is becoming of a Christian. But I believe the Lord has blessed us because we recognize Him on His special day, what we call Sunday. There's, a, there's principles that he put in place. Practices that he put into the culture of his business. And one that I think is pretty impressive actually is in lettering at the E-Town restaurant. It's actually in every restaurant, usually on your way to the restroom. <laughs> it says this, Food is essential to life, therefore make it good. He had a principle in mind that all of us are going to need food, all of us are going to need to eat, therefore we need to make it as good as it can possibly be. I'd like to change his quote just ever so slightly. See, I believe we need to be about good principles and good practices and a good culture in the body of believers called the church. I would say it this way. The gathering of believers... Is essential to the Christian life. Therefore, let's make it good. In Acts chapter 11, and Acts chapter 13, you have a church plant in Antioch that has the right things going on. They have the right principles, they have the right culture, they have the right practice, they have the right rhythm, they have the right way of thinking, the right way of serving. And and I just want to take a few principles from the way they do church and maybe ask us if that's how we're doing church. Acts chapter 19 is actually where we pick up. Excuse me, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 was where we were last week. You have the introduction of a group of believers that are expanding by the Lord's hand. And Barnabas hears of this as he is in Jerusalem, and he decides to go and check it out. Remember? We learned that last Sunday. And when he arrives, he finds people from all over, some from Cyprus, some from Cyrene, some from Jerusalem and Judea, because they had fled from the persecution arising after Stephen's martyrdom. You have... Groups of people gathered together from different cultures and different backgrounds and, and they're making public their faith in Christ and the Lord is adding to their number every single day. Barnabas arrives and we read there in verse 23 and 24 that he exhorted them and he encouraged them and, and he taught them and he encouraged them to stay faithful to their purpose, to stay faithful to the gospel. And they continue to grow such that he needs to go get some help. And we learned last Sunday, who did he go get? Saul of Tarsus. Let's begin reading in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christian. Let me pause there for a minute. Because while we talked about this title, Christian, last week, we didn't unpack it to its fullest extent. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, not in other parts of the world where the gospel had been taken. Antioch is the place, this little church plant that seeing the Lord's work expand, begins to have this title attached. Christian. Well, before that, the followers of Jesus were not called Christians, but they were called people of the way. Uh, They took John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And they took that phrase, I am the way, and that's what they referred to themselves as, followers of the way. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 9. When Paul still is breathing out murderous threats, he goes to the synagogues, to the chief priest, and asks for names of men and women who belong to the way. This is in Acts chapter 9 verse 2. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women... He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 19, there's another example of this phrase, the way. That's what Christians were called. There was actually a lawsuit a while back that a church wanted to be referred to as the church on the way or the church of the way. And there was actually a lawsuit that broke out because another church had already taken claim to that original title of followers of the way. Not sure exactly how the dispute finalized, but that's what the name was. So why did it change? Why did the name change from followers of the way to Christians? Well, you have to ask yourself, what does Christian really mean? If in Antioch they were first called Christian, what does it mean? And and we need to do a little language study. And for those of you who have studied Spanish, tune your ears in. And we have some in the house. What is the Spanish word for grandmother? Abuela. Abuela. Did you Can y'all you say that with me? Abuela. Abuela. Now, if you want to refer to your little granny, you don't say abuela, you say abuelita. Little granny. How many of you want to be a little granny when you grow up? <laughs> little granny. Or, let's do it this way. What is the Spanish word for dog? Perro. But the word for little dog or puppy is perito. It sounds like burrito, but it's perrito. Little dog, little dog. In the same way, see how they took the one word and added a little ending to make it the little of something? Abuela, abuelita, little granny. Pedro, perito, little dog, puppy. Christian or Christ in Greek is Christu, and what did they add to it? Christu anos, little Christ's. The name Christian, as many of you know, means little Christ. It's it's like a dad whose name's John, and he has a firstborn, and everyone refers to the firstborn as little John. It's a passing on of a name, a passing on of a title, a passing on of a of a character. You see, the Christians in Antioch looked like Jesus in the way they interacted. They spoke like Jesus in how they shared the gospel. They served like Jesus in how they minister to those around them. So much so that the name that attached themselves was their just little Christ's. Little Jesus. Little Jesus. Friends, let me ask you, do you carry His name in the same fashion? If you have claimed that He is Lord of your life and the Savior of your heart, and you have bore the confession that He is my King, are you talking like Him, serving like Him, relating to others like Him? Living like He would live. Now, granted, none of us can walk on water. None of us can change water into wine. None of us can feed multitudes with little lunches. None of us can tell the wind to be quiet. None of us can tell a dead man or a dead child to rise again. But in the way that we can, our human nature, if you follow Jesus, if you're one of His, you should symbolize Him, resemble Him, have the character that He has. If you want to be called a Christian, there's a lot that comes with that name. Little Christ. It's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. How are we carrying His name? A couple years ago in 2015, there was a horrific scene in the country of Libya where 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt, wearing orange jumpsuits, were placed on a beach. And a man in black, militant from ISIS, began referring to these Christians as people of the cross. And through the Arabic translation... Came a challenge to any of you who are out there who are people of the cross. Take notice, this is your fate. And those 21 men who could have at any moment denied their faith in Christ and saved their lives took well the name men of the cross. Because their Savior also died on a cross. And they would do nothing to deny His name before men. All 21 of them were beheaded. All 21 of them are now in the glories of heaven because they would not deny the name of their Savior. If you carry the name of Christ, brothers and sisters, it is something that you carry with the utmost heartfelt sincerity. No one is a Christian just because it's good to be a Christian or it's nice to be a Christian or you win political office because you're a Christian or you find a better job because you're a Christian. No, if you carry the name of Christ, you take on the claim, as Jesus said, if any would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Do you carry his name in a way that honors his name? It's It's important for us to evaluate, are we little Christs, little Jesus, to the world around us? That happened in Antioch. Well, more things are happening in Antioch. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 12, I don't mean to skip it, but it deals with the Apostle Peter, and this is a series on Barnabas, not the Apostle Peter, but it takes a trip back to Jerusalem for a moment and then it jumps back to Antioch in chapter 13. I want to look at some principles here and these are really important but they'll go really fast. Okay, This is not a long drawn out message but stay with me because these principles are key. Look at verse 1 through 5. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananene, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark to assist them. Let me give you just a quick few principles. Principle number one, leadership in Antioch was diverse. Leadership in Antioch was diverse. Look at the names just mentioned in verse 1 and and 2. You have there a diverse group of leaders. You have prophets and teachers, and that would be what they would refer to as the pastors and shepherds and overseers. You might even use the word initially. These are their, their fathers, their leaders, the ones that are set apart for leadership in their congregation. Look at the names and do a little bit of investigation on where they came from. Uh, Barnabas is mentioned first, the son of encouragement. Does anybody remember where his homeland was? His homeland was from Cyprus. Cyprus. Simeon, who was called Niger, most biblical scholars believe he is from Africa and that he has black skinned. Nigeria, Niger, the idea of the color black, often referred to as Negro. There's an idea that he might be from Africa, most likely East Africa, some place that we might think of today in places like Uganda or Sudan. Lucius of Cyrene, it says where he's from, and remember, Cyrene is North Africa. It would be modern-day Tunisia, right near the Libyan border. A Mananine. he's a friend of Herod now who is Herod this is the Herod who Jesus stood trial before this is the son of king Herod we read about in the nativity this is the son Herod Antipas his second or his son who's now the king that probably means Mananene is roman he's not from the region at all so far you got A guy from Cyprus, a guy from Cyrene, a guy from East Africa, and now a guy from Rome. And then you got Saul. And where is Saul from? He's from Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. you got five leaders who none of them grew up in Jerusalem, none of whom grew up together, none of whom have any historical lineage to one another except that they follow Christ and have somehow found themselves in Antioch. Let me try to make a point here. There is a benefit in local church life when leadership is diverse. When people from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, cultures, histories, come together under the banner of Christ. If your leadership slowly becomes unilateral, it's hard to remain unified. If your leadership all thinks the same, acts the same, knows the same people, grew up in the same part of the area, has no diversity, you would think, oh, that means they're all in agreement. But that's absolutely the opposite. If one family rules the roost, you're in trouble in leadership. The beauty is that Jesus brings people together from all walks of life, amen? that they don't have to have the same biology or the same history or even the same ethnicity. They come under the blood of Jesus who makes us brothers and sisters. Amen? And there's a beauty in that diversity. If your community is diverse, your leadership should be diverse. If you have a desire to have a church that's diverse, you need to put leaders in place that are from different backgrounds. We need some diversity here. Amen? Now, our part of the county, our part of Hardin County is 98% white, and we are a 98% white church. We might be a little more than that. But that doesn't mean that we still can't have diverse ideas and diverse leadership. We just need people. Even if we're all the same skin tone, we need to have people from different backgrounds, from different walks of life. I think we need to have leadership that's from different generations, I think it needs to come from all generations, not just a single generation. I think we need to have teachers and leaders and those who are guiding us who come from the business world and from the farming world, from the education world, maybe from the medical world, from the banking world, from the corporate world. We need people from all different walks of life to come together to help us because when we have diversity, we have what I believe is vision from God it's all from one group, the chances of unity are actually quite difficult. In Antioch, they had diverse leadership. In Antioch, here's another important principle, they worshipped and fasted. (laughs) If diversity in leadership is awkward for Southern Baptist churches, fasting is extremely awkward for Southern Baptist churches. We pride ourselves on being the people who love the book and who love to eat. <laughs> we got an amen on that one. It's interesting that in these few verses, these leaders in Antioch, verse 2, they worshiped the Lord and were fasting, and before they sent Paul Saul and Barnabas off, they fasted and prayed some more. Let me just make a thought here, friends. Worship, we don't always have a problem with. Worship is centering our heart's attention, excuse me, centering our heart's affection and our mind's attention on the glory and greatness of God. That's not too far for us to do. It's more than singing, it's more than praying, it's more than listening to the Word preached. It's saying, Jesus, you're my king, Lord Jesus, I put you back on the throne, I deny myself, and I make you who you always are, ruler and creator and savior and Lord, and I'm putting you back in your rightful place. That's what worship is. But fasting combined with worship intensifies worship. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that is spoken of throughout the Scripture that we tend to forget about. But what does it actually do? It it actually sharpens things. It refines things. It it fine-tunes. If if you imagine a telescope that you're looking out to the stars with, and you look through that little lens, and, and while you can see things, it's very blurry. What fasting does is it gives a refinement of the lens. It clarifies the vision. It puts a sharpened point on what you're trying to seek out from God. Now let me just say this, because I, I don't have time to explore what fasting is. There's lots of different ways to fast, and there's different means to fast. Some will fast television. Some will fast chocolate. Some will fast caffeine. Some will fast food. Some will fast media, social media, cell phones. There's lots of different ways to try to fine-tune your spiritual sensitivities and to try to fine-tune your vision of God's plan for your life. Lots of different ways. But let me just put it this way. There's something that we all could do more of, and that's to seek God with greater fervency. And if there are those of you in this room that feel like maybe your view of God and your intensity of God has begun to be a little flat, Combining the act of fasting along with other spiritual disciplines of reading the word, prayer, worship, giving, serving, sharing your faith, will fine fine tune that vision. It will intensify your desire. Let me give you one more. Let me just give you one more. In Antioch, not only did they carry the name Little Christ, and their leadership was diverse, their Worship included the act of fasting. Let me end here with in Antioch, God's Holy Spirit spoke. In verse 2, And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Let me ask you, does the Holy Spirit of God still speak to His people? Does the Holy Spirit of God still speak to leaders of local bodies of believers? Uh, Does the Holy Spirit of God still speak to people who are earnestly seeking the Lord? Does does the Spirit of God speak to our hearts in ways that we would not audibly hear, but we feel a nudging, an urging, a, a, a moving of God's Spirit in our soul? Does He speak? Does the Spirit of God still speak through God's Word? Does the Spirit of God still speak through God's people? Does the Spirit of God still speak whenever we follow His leadership and we know that He is moving us to do things that we wouldn't normally do? Does the Spirit of God still speak to the sinner's heart, reminding them of what's right and what's wrong? I've been asked... At one point in my life to explain to 3rd, 4th, and 5th graders, how do you hear the Spirit of God? Y'all want to answer that? And this is the only way I could come up with explaining how to hear the Spirit of God's voice. Most clearly, it's going to come from the Word of Jesus. Most clearly, it's going to come from God's Word, but it feels like you've got a rope, tied to your heart and something's pulling you. Maybe you're in a place and you know you have no business being there. You're about to do something that you know is absolutely against God's commands. And you feel this thing and it's it's tugging you and it's warning you and it's trying to make you feel anxious and you feel wrong and you feel worried and, and you wonder, where is this coming from? Is this just my conscience? Is this just that little angel on one side, demon on the other, speaking into my ears like in cartoon characters? Is it just I'm worried about getting caught? Am I worried about being found out? Am I worried about what if this is made known? It's, it's all of that but more. It's the Spirit of God pulling you toward the things that God would have you do. And if you've not experienced that, maybe you don't know what that is. It's a good question to ask yourself, have you really been born again? Because all believers in Christ who are indwell with the Holy Spirit of God, when they find themselves in places they ought not be, there is this pull on their heart. Now, I'll tell you what it does to me. It makes me sweat. Now, I'm not a hellfire brimstone preacher. You know, some of those guys wear, you know, on their heads because they're fiery and they're sweating. What it gets me is when I know I'm doing something that ought not be done and all of a sudden I feel this anxiety in my gut and this uncomfortableness in my chest and my forehead begins to sweat and it's a physical reaction to the Holy Spirit saying, Shane, this is not for you. Why are you getting into this? You see, the Holy Spirit spoke here. And I believe the Holy Spirit speaks here in our church. And I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to you if you would have ears to listen and a heart willing to obey. I believe the Holy Spirit is willing to speak to any of us who are willing to be obedient. The question is, is that something that has regularly happened to you? See, in Antioch, the Holy Spirit spoke. In Antioch, the leadership was diverse. In Antioch, they worshipped and they fasted. In Antioch, they took on the name of Christ seriously. And the Lord says over and over in His Word, and people were being added unto them daily. That's a church that's making best practices in ministry. Would you just bow your head? just for a moment as we prepare for invitation. I just want to ask you a couple thoughts, a couple questions, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I'd like to ask you, are you carrying the name of Christ in a way that honors His name? As you look at your life, as you look at your choices, as you look at the things that you value the most, are those kinds of things that make you a little Christ? Or are there some things in your life that need to be removed because you hold up His name and maybe you're not holding up His name well? I would ask you, is the Holy Spirit nudging at your heart? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart? It's the Holy Spirit giving you that sense of urgency, that sense of nudging, that sense of pulling and tugging. Because you know there's a decision that you need to make. You I'm willing to make it. Maybe right now there would be one that would say, I need to intensify my spiritual life. I need to refine and sharpen my spiritual sensitivities. And maybe it's time that I need to lay down something for a time period to focus more intensely on the Lord. Maybe there would be one of our leaders here today that would say we need to actually be thoughtful about diversifying who's in leadership, making sure that we have every generation, every background, every history represented in who leads us here. Father, we are just taking your word as a tool to guide us we let you work and we let your spirit move and we let your your words dwell in us. So right now, whatever response, whatever decision, whatever things that need to be done before you, I pray they would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. We just